Well, welcome back to the Dungeon Master's Block, the place where we come to talk about the Dungeon Master, the most important person in the game, the only person capable of playing God, killing characters, and lowering the egos of all the people at the table. I'm your host for the intro to this episode, DM Chris. I'll be joined by uh, DM Neil and also Jim from WebDM later in the episode. We're excited to talk all about post-apocalyptic worlds, and trust me, it's a great great episode it was one that neil and i both said afterwards we were done recording it it was one of our favorites in a real in the in the near past uh that was really really fun for us to record so we're excited for you uh to listen to it but first we have some work to get through we have some itunes reviews uh to get through we're gonna do one uh right now this one is by dm lost boy it's called this pod took the top spot now what he writes Settling into my creaky computer chair, beard still damp from my shower, I plugged in. I plugged up the old iPhone and hit play, only to be made gut-wrenchingly aware that I had somehow reached the end? Question mark. I'm caught up. How could the past few weeks of slipping into this comfortable, familiar banter in my free time, be it driving, breaks at breakouts at work, or even the wee hours of the morning, have possibly brought me to this terrible but inevitable conclusion? And then, to the true horror of the situation, hits me. What do I do now? Hint, I came in to rate your podcast so that others may taste its glory. Come friends, listen to what we may, we may learn. So thank you, DM Lost Boy, for your review. That was such a good one. I always love getting ones that are very animated uh, and excited. We also have uh, a patron dragon to give a shout out to. So we have Pax, uh, who is a silver dragon. So thank you so much for your support on Patreon. Pax uh, has been given access to uh, one of the things that we do on our Patreon flashback episodes where uh, we look back at old episodes uh, and give them, breathe some new fresh life into them. And so uh, the one that is out currently, the newest one is our flashback episode for improv exercises. And from what I've heard from Neil and Mitch is Neil does some uh, wonderful improv exercises <laughs> to try and get into the improv spirit. So. Go and check those things out if you're interested in being a patron dragon. Uh, search for us on Patreon, Block Party Podcast Network. Uh, you can find us there. So with that, let's head to the meat. I'm starving. We ain't had nothing but maggoty bread for three stinking days. Why can't we have some meats? Looks like meat's back on the menu, boys. <laughs> So today for the meet, we have a returning guest. We have Jim, one of the hosts and founders and the creative director of WebDM. And I am almost disappointed I didn't say here for the radioactive meet, but you'll figure that out soon enough. Jim, thanks for coming back on and spending some more time with us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a pleasure to be back. Thanks, guys. Yeah, it's good, Jim. Uh, longtime subscriber of the YouTube channel. I think I was around like... 91,000 and I know there's like a hundred thousand more since then. So yeah, yeah. I think that makes me like, you get a little bad, you get a bad originals, right? I'm sure. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) Find my, find my username on YouTube and give it. Right. (laughs) Um, So why don't you tell us just a little bit of, a little bit about yourself? I mean, you've been on here before, but there may be new people that are listening that, that don't necessarily know who you are. Yeah, yeah. So uh, along with my uh, my other host, uh, Jonathan Pruitt, uh, we have a weekly YouTube show uh, that's 
like yeah, we talk about D and D and other tabletop RPGs, particularly in like the traditional game sphere, you know, DM and, and players. Um, and for the most part, we try to you know have them be educational, inspirational, and like to think of the YouTube channel as like a digital bookshelf, where you know any given week's video might not be your cup of tea. You might be like, oh, I'll watch it later, you know. But a year from then, you know, six months from then, when you're prepping for a game or you want some sort of inspiration for something, like you turn it on, you watch it a few times in the background. And and so we, we think of our content as very like long term and and, you know, not like this week we're talking about these spells that suck or, you know, this this thing that happened in the news. Like I like those channels. I watch them myself. But, you know, those aren't the kind of videos we make. Um, and then we have that. We also have our uh, second YouTube channel, Webbian Plays, which has uh, our actual plays archived on it. Uh, so you can find those there, including the game that I ran, Land Between Two Rivers, that inspired uh, our, uh, our Kickstarter that we're making. That perfect segue. It's like you do this all the time. So our <laughs> second question is, is there anything that you're working on? And of course, we always throw out that you can tell us about. Oh yeah, 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 certainly. Yeah, well, right now I'm I'm uh, <laughs> neck deep in uh, in five E design uh, with um, our Kickstarter. I've been working on it for a while now. Uh, it's taken sort of many shapes and forms to kind of get to the weird wastelands, and um, you know I'm, I'm sort of like taking the lead on writing and designing for it, and have been kind of preparing for that for a while because. The type of writing that I was used to is very different than, you know, game design writing, and and so uh, I want to get myself in uh, in shape for that. But uh, yeah, that that's kind of it. Like everything right now, other than sort of weekly videos and podcasts, uh, is going to uh, to the Kickstarter book, uh, Weird Wastelands. And it's it's doing, and I'd say this in absolute jest. It's doing <laughs> terrible, sir. Just, just, uh, just yeah, right. yeah, oh, it's such a disappointment. Oh my god! <laughs> Please, listeners, go, go, go now. Oh, we've right. literally wasted yeah. our time. Oh my god! What am I doing? What am I doing? I'm so life? excited. Yeah, because it yeah. funded within sixteen minutes. Awesome. It's <laughs> over two hundred and fifty thousand, yeah. if memory serves, and like. 16 mm-hmm. minutes? I didn't know it was 16 minutes. It was 16, got, holy smokes. It was 16 minutes because uh, Pruitt, Emma, and I, uh, Emma's our CEO, uh, also happens to be my spouse, uh, and um, we're just like, like literally counting down the seconds and refreshing. Like, can you get 15? Can wow. we get under 15? 16 was like, oh, I guess we can live with it. Yeah. <laughs> guess we got to try another one in yeah. the future to oh, try and be 15. what a failure. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So yeah. definitely go check it out. They're just it's absolutely just blowing it away. And I'm, I'm so excited for you and just for really at that point, everyone backing it um, because I know the people behind the people behind it um, and that's 2C Gaming is helping as well. And then that's Celeste who you, our listeners know very well. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, mm-hmm. so yeah, She's really awesome. great people yeah. behind it. Um, so we have a surprise question. Yeah, let's hear it. I have a surprise question unless Chris has a surprise question. He doesn't. I don't. I didn't know if you had a listener one or you I were making was making it up. It up. <laughs> so if you could choose one D&D monster to make a radioactive version of it, which would you choose? Oh, well, I'm a big Godzilla. Like, like Godzilla is a, a real special kind of monster to me. So I could see it being the Jurassic mm. oh. and having like the radioactive <laughs> breath and everything. But that's that feels like low hanging fruit. Um, <laughs> I I think like dragons kind of a take on that. I want to say something 
that uh, is either like otherwise sort of wholesome or where you would want to be near it or something or that could make you stay near it, right? Like this is going to sound like a complete tangent, but it's one of my favorite moments in gaming of like in uh, Curse of Strahd, there's a room in the Amber Temple. There's like a bunch of cadavers around an idol and like they're just like they look like they just stayed there till they died you know no, nothing obviously killed them that was all we knew about it we, we you know, don't know what's the actual description of it was but it's like that thing made these people kill themselves <laughs> through starvation and so like i would want a monster that's like it seems attractive like yeah come over here come hang out so maybe one that could charm or like mind control to like keep you around so that you just like slowly waste away i love this question because i also just watched uh, the chernobyl miniseries and of course mm -hmm. that's very gruesome uh <laughs> but uh yeah maybe a beholder oh gosh yeah, yeah. Anyway, yeah. done i love i love that answer <laughs> out of all of out of all of its eye stalks, give it a radioactive ray. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or something, or a mimic. <laughs> can you imagine a, a radioactive mimic that can just be anything and constantly move around? And yeah, that'd be terrifying. Well, I mean, I guess in like a post-apocalyptic world, you could have like a 55-gallon drum that's a mimic that has <laughs> nuclear waste in it. Exactly. You know? Nom, 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 nom. <laughs> just walking around, yep. living its best. Yeah, and, you want, and we want our barbarian to drink yeah. it. So. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> Barbarians are always the cupbearers in the world. Yeah, yeah for yeah. sure. <laughs> so that leads us perfectly into the topic that we want to approach. And uh, we wanted to bring you on because, of course, we want to help promote even further Weird Wastelands. But one of the base concepts behind Weird Wastelands is existing in a post-apocalyptic world and creating one. How do you do it? What do you do? So I, the first question we have on the outline, and of course it can let us go anywhere, is what makes a post-apocalyptic world to each of us and jim we'll go ahead and start with you oh yeah this is i like i literally spend way too much time thinking about this um, perfect <laughs> so like i to me the qualities of a post-apocalyptic world as a as like genre fiction right are like the the shadow of a prior civilization that that the people that exist and live in that post-apocalyptic wasteland they haven't moved beyond or or surpassed or like come out of the shadow of what came before either it's like they remember you know from the before times or like or the immediate descendants of but you know this this would be like you know the century after rome leaves britain or something like that you know there's an awareness that the people before us really had it going on and they did this to themselves it might have been us you know uh, so that's a big part of it uh, coupled with that is sort of just a lack of civilizational structures and institutions. There, there's no authority. There's no, you know, the, the, the cops aren't going to show up. The army can't show up. There's no president or manager to talk to. You know, it's it's sort of a might makes right um, Hobbesian world of, of all against all. Uh, and that creates sort of a scarcity of resources, which would be the third one. Either there's probably some kind of environmental hazard or just like the collapse of society creates scarcity and and like managing that scarcity uh is is a, a big component of it so scavenging and repurposing things and and the like i find is a big component of, of the genre and then uh the fourth one i would say is is uh it's kind of related to that but it's just sort of general survival it's continuity it's like 
you know, one of my favorite post-apocalypse stories is Waterworld. <laughs> as terrible <laughs> as that movie is, it's also good. And like the whole point of it is that you know, there's hope. Like this, this terrible, this like terrible world we live on. And, and watching it recently, I was like, geez, it would suck. This would absolutely suck to live here. Just how terrible it is. Like, no, there's still hope. There's dry land out there. We could, you know, we can, uh, you know, we can survive, and there can be continuity because, um, you know, life goes on, and like, what was post-apocalypse just eventually becomes ancient history, and um, I think that's that's what I like about it uh, the, the most is there are those elements. Yeah, I was I was thinking very similar thoughts of there was one civilization structures parameters in which things worked they collapsed. The scarcity one is the one I was thinking about the most is like, cause, cause scarcity can promote an apocalypse in and of itself, right? Like you could go from being a very influential civilization to now drought has happened for an extended oh, yeah. period of time and civilization starts to just collapse, you know, or an, an, uh, an extreme amount of uh, cold weather and you can't grow crops or what, and now you're in an ice age, like, Thinking along the lines of Snowpiercer, you know, living on the train in an apocalyptic world, oh, yeah. you know. Yeah. So I think I, I love, you know, when I think about post-apocalyptic worlds, the scarcity idea, I mean, just could literally drive everything for your players in a world. And that that's what I think of quite a bit is how are we going to survive when either material components, food, shelter, um, whatever those sorts of things are, are scarce and we can't survive without them. Yeah. For real. One of the ones that I guess I just never attributed to the idea, but now it's like, of course, now it's all I can think about. Thank you, Jim. Um, Is the idea of the shadows of the past. (laughs) And like, that is such an interesting dial to be turning on a post-apocalyptic world because was it a couple years ago? Because you can still be in a post-apocalyptic world and those shadows were only a couple years old or they a couple thousand years old. And it's like you said, it starts to go towards ancient history, not what was. And, and I feel like that is probably one of the more interesting dials to turn because that can really gauge everything um, ab- about the world. Especially because in a fantasy game, you have variably lived uh, people, you know, you've got elves and dwarves next to, to humans and like what's ancient history for a human is like recent events for an elf. And and one of the things I like just about traditional fantasy, which is a, has a flavor of post apocalypse to it, because of you know our own you know Western European medieval history and the fall of Rome, and just kind of like baked in uh, of there being a prior civilization, is like the sort of sorrow of the elves makes sense if you look at it from the case of they are undergoing a post apocalyptic event where their society has completely collapsed, they're diminishing as a civilization. These other people who aren't anywhere near their equal in terms of grace and, and wisdom uh, are spreading like, like, you know, just everywhere. And, and they're on this sort of civilizational decline and you can sort of see the, why elves or dwarves might withdraw from the world. thus thus like exacerbating and, and hastening, you know, their, their kind of decline. But there's like, I think it's just baked into traditional fantasy. And so, part of what I like about playing in a post-apocalyptic world is that you can rest assured that you're still playing in a game world that supports adventure and, and not like this bleak and hopeless 
place, you know, that, that you might as well not even game in like, cause you're here to make a difference. You're here to make your mark and to, to play out your characters. Uh, you know, whatever little glimpse you get into their life. Uh, and there has to be something worth fighting for even amidst the ruin. <laughs> well, Jim, yeah, I think that's an interesting idea, Jim, the, the idea that apocalypses might look different based on what society you're a part of. Like just thinking about, you know, you talk about the elves declining and the dwarves declining, like it immediately brings back like Lord of the Rings. It's a very mm. easy reference to go to, right? Like I had never thought that Elrond and all of the elves might be in their own like decline <laughs> post-apocalypse because everything looks glitzy and glamoury still, right? But they're all getting the heck out of Middle yeah, Earth. Yeah, they're all heading you know? to the Great It's just an interesting way to think about apocalypses. It's not like another ice age or a nuclear meltdown yeah. or meteor hitting the Earth. Like it could literally just be your society had something happen where it's now declining. And that, that's interesting. That's interesting to think about because it promotes so much like is there the power struggle of can we get back? Are we past the point of no return? Like that's an interesting story hook like the turn of the apocalypse, right? For an elven society where you're trying to hold on to some thread of what it once was, but is it just a fleeting hope that you have? Yeah. Meanwhile, 20 generations of humans, <laughs> you know, while, yeah. while all that's going on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yep. Way too many thoughts because I also like my, <laughs> my other thought was um, how, all encompassing is this post-apocalyptic world because oh, it, oh yeah yeah because where what is travel in your world is it i mean is it eberron so if we choose post-apocalyptic with a morning as an example like that that kind of takes the world but at the same time like if, if we choose something where travel isn't as ubiquitous like is it's an area it's a continent where you could go to where the elves are and they're they are just living their best elf life and they have no idea what you're talking about. This nonsense about things will, things are in this state and they'll just, they'll just tell you, yeah, that's fine. It'll probably solve itself in about a hundred years. Like what's your problem? Yeah. Or worse, someone's taking advantage of it to get a boost up. You know, like there, there's, a, I, I'm a historian by, by education. I have a master's degree in history and a lot of, a lot of my thoughts are influenced by like just cycles of civilizations and sort of long view of history. And like, it's a lot of times where one empire or civilization or whatever is on a decline and the people on the periphery of it or, or something are using that decline to increase their own wealth and power and position. And so that kind of creates a terrifying situation to like exploit for gaming because it's like, yeah, you're over here scrounging for supplies and whatever, but there's like this mysterious force out there, you know, in, in places that used to be yours, that's taking advantage of it. That's looting yours that has organization and, and, and the means to like put up this kind of resistance, uh, you know, sort of unified resistance. And it'd be kind of terrifying to be in a position of like, you're just like hunter gatherers to these people who've maybe planar invaders or, you know, something like that. When I, when I think about it in terms of D and D and like travel and, and the scope of your campaign, I see like if your world is undergoing a cataclysmic event, like a global apocalypse, that must make you ripe for like planar scavengers and cosmic sort of carrion eaters, you know, just like a sick animal is, is vulnerable to all sorts of predators, like on a cosmic scale, like oh, this world's undergoing, a, you know, something terrible happening. What happened to its gods? Why aren't they checking it? Why aren't they helping it out? Did they just leave it alone? Well, that means they don't have any protectors. 
and you know i would expect like infernal invasions and and you know just planar armies to come and carve this prime world up and and use it for whatever it is they the want, you know? <laughs> yeah. and, that, and yeah. that provides a scalability for a game like dungeons and dragons that starts out small and you're scrounging for resources but needs to have something baked in that you do at the higher levels you know because it past 10th level nobody cares if you got food and water for yourself they might care for your town or your war band that you lead around but like personal survival is just no longer interesting at 10th level you know the games move beyond it right yeah you can create your own food and water at that point yeah it's more interesting to be like can you feed your army can you can you keep this town uh you know with clean water that kind of thing well and then that i mean even that sort of thought is then mages and people of magical abilities become even not even just like the ability to enchant weapons and do really cool fireballs but like they're <laughs> i mean if you have a wizard in your town that can create enough food to sustain like that's yeah you you better believe somebody's going to come and tr- come by and try and capture that wizard oh, yeah. in some way shape or form or take over that town yeah yeah if they've got like creation and fabricate and all those kinds of things yeah it's going to be it's going to be nasty all of these questions are how I, or like what I was answering and sort of attempted to answer in uh, Land Between Two Rivers, which was a post-apocalyptic uh, 5e game that I ran both on stream and off. And it's like, it's inspired by Dark Sun and the Mornland and Eberron, but all of these things of like, what about the planes? What about magic users and clerics and the like? Like that informed how I built it. So, you know, for the Land Between Two Rivers, the world that it exists on, um, it, it's an apocalypse everywhere. You, it, no matter where you go, there's an apocalypse happening. This is a cosmos-wide, multiverse-wide phenomenon. And like um, players sort of figured that out, <laughs> you know, onion layer by onion layer. But like the first time they went to Mount Celestia and it was empty. There's just there are no angels, there's no souls, there's no saints. It's just empty. Like a couple of players <laughs> like visibly chilled and and kind of uh you know like what that you know understood the magnitude of it but that's how i saw it i was like i if you're gonna have an apocalypse in a DD world if, if the gods could show up and fix all this then what about it? did they cause it did they walk away from their responsibilities like those kinds of questions really uh, helped inform why land between two rivers like looks the way it does and it plays the way it does and then it's inspiring uh weird wastelands which uh you know it's all the implied setting of the book I totally lost my train of thought thinking about <laughs> well I'm thinking about the the gods because my, the other like like you were saying with those onion layers is did they leave because they know something else is about to happen and they're like we got to go we got to get we're going to get on our celestial bus <laughs> and we're headed out and we're headed out yeah <laughs> we had a little insider trading here <laughs> peace out we're done <laughs> yeah i i ended up turning uh, my game world into a post apocalypse by tpk um it was sort of it was my first third edition game that uh that i'd run and players were like 17th level or something and i was like wait dragons can have class levels and like <laughs> loaded up a great worm dragon with 20 levels of wizard and it's supposed to be just a neutral npc and the, the party decided they wanted to fight it and i wasn't going to stop them because you know it's their decision and it mopped the floor with them um and we sort of were like a session or two away from sort of the climax of the campaign they were like on the way to the big bad and like let's trust this dragon on the way (laughs) and um so i was like we get done with this tpk 
a third of the party surrendered <laughs> uh, and we're just kind of in shock because like i said first time really running third edition and so well, i guess the bad guy wins and the bad guy were a bunch of like drow vampires trying to blot out the sun and then the next campaign was like a hundred years later and it was like all right well what happens whenever this you know planet is no longer uh benefits from its sun so it's a frozen just hell world and and, and part of the campaign was like rallying the gods and like finding them and being like why did you leave like why did you let this happen you got to come back and so you know as that campaign got into the higher levels it was about going around the plains and finding the gods and figuring out why they abandoned their responsibility and in some cases forcing them to come back and uh make things right which once again well done perfect segue into our next question um <laughs> is also the idea of like you you've brought that up so are there are other instances uh, that we've personally done, because I, I have a few certainly, of uh, making a post-apocalyptic world, because there's, there's certainly two avenues. Um, the one that you've brought up where you have a world and now it's post-apocalyptic, or you have a post-apocalyptic world, now you have a game. Kind of the, the chicken and the glowing green egg, if you will. Um, <laughs> So, so I'll throw mine out. Um, it's, it was a world where there was a moon that was like fairly well vegetated and things like that. And so the, the world had through magic and technology had created a portal between the two spaces. Um, and it wasn't, it wasn't great, it, but it could happen. Um, so it wasn't like everyone could just go back and forth whenever they wanted. So they're setting up a civilization on the moon, and then for reasons unknown, the entire world is encased in flame um, mm. and burns for several years. Yeah. Now you're just on this moon. The civilization that had started to establish itself there is on the moon. They don't have any idea why it's happened. They have refugees that came through the portal as fast as they could, which then also creates, Chris, going back to your scarcity idea, like the civilization wasn't necessarily prepared to just have these thousands and thousands of extra refugees. But those refugees also don't have an answer. They're just leaving the place that's clearly on fire. Um, and so then, yeah, now you have this you have almost like a double post-apocalyptic world. Like we're not set up here and we don't know what happened down there. Awesome. Mm. That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. I, I like, I like, you know, like the, the suddenness of an apocalypse can explain some of that scarcity. And one of the things about, you know, you're talking like civilization is like, not everything's all in one place ready to be used. And it gives a nice justification for loot that the party can find and, uh, and things like that. So I, I really like the, uh, <laughs> Oh, we weren't prepared for this. Mm -hmm. Oh no! What, uh, yeah, what do we do? And it contributes to and sort of creates uh, the disaster. <laughs> yeah the the way that I've done it, there's an entire era in the world um, that I've created called the era of the blight, where there's like just this poison that starts to sift through the entire land. It's released somehow into the material, but it's so slow moving that like people. So it's like the exact opposite, Neil. It's it's not the shock and mm -hmm. awe factor. Mm -hmm. It's like it's like it takes like 150 years for it to encompass the entire world at that point. But so like it creates a different dynamic of like, I mean, you might move far enough away where like oh, yeah. you expect your family to be fine. And then it's like, okay, great. Now I have to deal with this all over again, you mm -hmm. know, mm -hmm. and like the entire world, they, they find out that it's like it doesn't pass through like stone and rock and very hard materials. It's just through you know, the, the soft kind of sediments, sand, dirt, things like that. 
So they're trying to, in like the mountains around the world, try and transport as much dirt like up into them as possible to try and like create some sort of. So you have an entire period of time where there's people that were left behind who also it's kind of like um, you guys seen the show The 100 before where it's like they come back (laughs) down to the earth and then there's like people that have survived the radiation. Right. Like there's the blight touched people who stayed behind and figured out how to thrive and survive. And then there was the other factions of people that hid in the mountains and like transported this dirt up there. And then it all comes to an end when they figure out, like, I'm not going to give too much away in the podcast because some of my players <laughs> listen and they're like in the era, just post that, like maybe 200 years yeah. past and some of the stuff might deal with that. So there's a moment where they all start to try and come back together afterwards. And it's a very like chaotic couple generations of like, okay, now we have these light touched people and we have these people that were very nomadic but survived Mm. in the ways that they did and how do you now enmesh two very different civilizations after 400 years of this being a thing oh yeah yeah. um when they kind of have some semblance of stories passed down from beforehand so they kind of connect with each other but not really at the same time because they're totally different people at this point i'm i'm a huge fan of like the the slow burn aspect of stuff just because uh, I don't know, maybe I'm just sadistic like that, but it it's always fun to think through that stuff. It is. It's like for like, cause you can play in it without it being like this urgent crisis. Like you can do like the, you know, you know, during the apocalypse as like a disaster game, you know, of like the sudden collapse or, or, you know, whatever, but like a slow it's happening around us, but just, we can't really perceive it or, seem to do anything about it like i feel like that's a really good adventurous environment especially if you've got like a player driven you know we're not we're just sort of out for ourselves and our own goals kind of game um it could be really fun and just a decadence and decline <laughs> that's really cool when it's always always that thing that's over there somewhere yeah until it's yeah, not until it's anymore. not yeah those other those are yeah. refugees over in that other land not ours you know we're fine here in the you know the capital or the high you know our our safety uh you know fortress and the like yeah <laughs> or yeah, and even the idea of that slow burn and going kind of back to the the human versus elf lifespan that we brought up before like it could be generations before that family has to deal with that same problem uh mm-hmm. and even you know having the nuance of the kids not believing these stories because they're just living their life out here in in the wilderness and now it's here and what do we do sort of sort of adventure as well and also then i've never done it but i've definitely heard people do it where do you just have the whole party of adventures it's like the partridge family with swords i mean like <laughs> that sounds amazing yeah yeah it's post apocalyptic games work really well for like troop style play where you have you know, sort of multiple characters or you play like a main character and then, you know, like sidekicks, uh, if, if you like, just cause this sort of that, the group, the kind of like the, the, I don't know what you'd call it. I don't have a name for it, but just that kind of like the, the tribalness of, you know, we're a band of survivors. Our common, you know, experience of this place is what binds us together. And that's like, well, it sounds like an adventuring party to me. Like, <laughs> you know, so, yeah. so just like the, just the, the act of daily survival in a post popular apocalyptic world of like acquiring resources and dealing with threats like that that's the those are the bare components of like traditional dungeon crawling and and like the foundation that, that a game like D is built on so to me just like living out 
you know, their lives. Well, you want it to be exciting and adventuresome. The, you don't have to like twist the setting to make it fit the game. They're just a really solid fit for each other. Yeah, you don't have to worry about group togetherness if survival is your Yeah, yeah, you guys, yeah, even if you guys are evil, like you still, like you can't do everything on your own. Like you need yeah. other people you can trust and, and work together towards. Well, and so many, so many like post-apocalyptic movies and stuff have that, you know, you think of The Walking Dead, right? Mm-hmm. Like they come together basically out of survival. You know, I listened to the audio drama back in the day called We're Alive, you know, the mm. zombie. And that was the exact thing. They meet a group of people and then it's like, how do we survive in the midst of this? You know, it, it's the easy, it's the easy group thing to be like, yeah, survival alone is probably really hard in an <laughs> yeah. apocalypse. Yeah. Especially, especially if it's like the first generation who's having to deal with this and you're just used to completely different life and expectations mm. and things like that. Like, you know, you almost... It's like if you could be a kid and grow up there, you know, and survive all that, you'll probably be all right. <laughs> like you, you know, you sort of this is all normal uh, and everything. But um, I find like those are the kinds of things that I really think about whenever I'm building my post-apocalyptic worlds. Because it's one thing to look at like the big view of it and go, "This is what caused the cataclysm. This is where it started and how it impacted like on the the big scale." But like you don't play at that scale; you play at a much smaller you know, personal, uh, kind of scale. So I usually look, um, you know, I, I, I tend to run my games in like two homebrew worlds or just like a boxed campaign. If, if I'm going to do something like I'll, I trash the forgotten realms plenty. Cause it's like, <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll run in. I don't really care. Yeah, sure. 200 dragons. Yeah. That sounds terrible. Like that kind of thing. Um, <laughs> uh, but in my homebrew worlds, um, you know, one of them with this TPK, and uh, the second game was largely set in this world with no sun and like the surface is overrun by all sorts of frost resistant creatures and, you know, humans are kept in like essentially containment camps just below the ground by Dwergar and Drow. And it's this kind of like really kind of terrible hellish place. And yet I was like, I didn't want to make it so terrible that nobody wanted to be there. Uh, you know, like I think it's, you know, when you're building out these worlds, keeping the possibility for hope and improvement uh, on the table and like thinking about like, okay, how could this place change? If someone with like, you know, a, a good heart and competent and, and, you know, how to help really sets their mind to it, could they establish some kind of normalcy and, and like safety for others and, and build something up? And so it was, it's important to me when I'm thinking about the, uh, these worlds for games to include something like that. Uh, because I think it's really easy to uh, murder hobo your way through a post-apocalyptic setting, and that might be all right for a while, you know, if that's if that's your uh, you know, your preference. But what I find is like when you take the scarcity of resources and the bleakness of the setting, and then choose to be a hero to sort of you know help others at uh, you know no no benefit to yourself, or or to like you know, take the precepts of lawful goodness or whatever seriously. Like, it'd be way easier to just kill all this. I'm a D&D character, I'm like sixth level, you know, <laughs> like 80% of things I run into, I could easily leave as a greasy smear. Like, it'd be way easy to just become like a, a warlord. But I think it's more interesting when you go, I, I want to choose to help others and choose to do something better. And like that bleakness is such a contrast then I really want to leave a lot of freedom for the players to choose how they navigate that. So that, that usually, that's usually like my first priority when building a world is 
is presenting it as a place that they have the freedom to do things. But I feel like everyone's alignment harsh. is like chaotic in a post-apocalyptic world. <laughs> you might you might be good or neutral or evil, but like I feel like it's always just chaotic. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, and then of course, and I've said it multiple times here and probably anywhere I get a chance, the alignment system is very interesting because it's expecting you to define what you do in your day-to-day life in absolutely ridiculous scenarios that you then find your character in like, yeah, sure. When I'm here working my nine to five, Mm -hmm. am I what, when I have to face the moral decision of leaving the rest of my party to maybe go get help. Oh, that's not the same caliber of person I'm needing to be. And even making one bad choice doesn't mean I'm a bad, like I'm no longer, let's say lawful good. Like you said, I, you're like the yeah. whole point is, is pushing on the, uh, on those limits. But like you said, Chris, I think you, there's a level of chaoticness that comes from the scarcity that comes from the potential of the fear. It comes from that tenuous grasp on hope that I now have. Um, but I really do feel like one of the things I see with post-apocalypse, worlds and and media is that like-minded people still end up finding themselves together yeah um and either they 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 get together and they create that at the same time or they just happen to find each other because again like the walking dead i think of like negan and his crew versus rick and his crew and like the those like-minded people just start to glom together because is it that they've lost hope is it that these these still have it um so yeah that's always what i've seen is they'll, they'll find each other yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. They don't have the internet, but they figure it out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They don't have a lot of things, but man, they look good in that post-apocalyptic world. <laughs> it's surprising. Right. Everybody. Who's cutting your hair? <laughs> so well. Exactly. Uh, exactly. The mage that can create food and the hairstylist, yes. the two yeah, most important yeah. people in the post-apocalyptic world. Well, and you brought that up, and I also thought of how unexciting some of those aspects become and you you have to make these decisions as the person building and running the game but like there's this scenario where i just see the mage being like this kind of bummed out municipal worker like yeah 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 there's there's a scenario where they just say every six seconds they're purifying something and like that's just their nine to five cranking it out like a factory almost yeah and i i kind of like solved some of that myself by you know, land between two rivers settlements are generally they're either formed around some sort of resource that you know is fixed like it's a you know there's a well here or this is a particularly defensible location but it's just as often that most uh settlements are are founded where they are because that's where a powerful wizard or monster lives and like these are people who would otherwise be defenseless in the waste and they'll accept a sort of oppressive uh you know an oppressed life living for a tyrant wizard you know who can at the very least like protect them and and you know they might have to you know work themselves to death for them but there's gonna be clean water and so like it's that bleak background that the players then go like well this is messed up right like this doesn't seem right and can you know do something about if they choose to but it it looks at it and goes like yeah if wizards are if you have know, access to magic and, and ready access to it is is uh, going to be the key to survival, then like to me that puts them them in a position to exploit that and lead instead of serve. And then I also used it to sort of contrast a a faction in the world that was essentially a bunch of druids and bards and rangers and clerics who were like 
you know what it, it, we don't have to be you know <laughs> terrible to each other like we could like you know we could get together for mutual aid and defense and maybe make this place livable uh and that becomes my analog for the civilized portion of the world that the players can kind of call home base and let their guard down but they're still like wandering monster checks and things like that because it's the wasteland <laughs> i let i also love that we we've got we've gone this far and just like really not even dipped into monsters at all but it, but it, but it is world building and, and yeah. the world itself and i think i guess that's the other thing we can kind of touch on before we jump into homework is like one of the nice things that I feel as a DM when working with a post-apocalyptic world is that I feel more equipped. I don't even want to say equipped, just more freedom to just be like, no, this thing's super we like weird. Yeah. Um, yeah. And because magic, because radioactivity, because lack of magic, because I, the, get weird with it. Like the radioactive beholder that we created mm, already. Mm. And so, um, and just the, to expect the unexpected. And that's going back into the idea that most people are chaotic because of that. Um, but I do think that there's just an added freedom of just getting weird with your monsters. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And, and like, especially because like, there's no civilization to keep them at bay. Like the monsters are usually tough. They could, a lot of them can probably survive what's, what's coming or, or, or even thrive depending on what it's like. And you know, that, that doesn't even count the number of people who would try to like, maybe save themselves by becoming monstrous. Like how many people are going to try to like pursue undeath as a way to survive or, 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 or something or, or like as an act of despair. And so to me, like the wasteland is probably thick with undead, like just crawling with it. And I, I had them much like walking dead, moving in giant herds. Uh, you know, of sort of shambling, uh, desiccating uh, zombies and the ghouls that follow them, eating the, the the pieces, and you know they were environmental hazards almost. And you know it might take a two or three days for one to pass while you just kind of hide out, and then big monsters like dragons or or something like that, they're functionally NPCs that control territory and and exact tribute, and and that you have to kind of treat as. Uh, factions in their own right, rather than just monsters to go beat up. And so it's like, it's like, it's really like a, a, a little pinpricks of light, <laughs> uh, you know, kind of setting in a, in a sea of monstrous darkness in many ways. Yeah. Well, in that first time, I mean, in the current campaign I'm running, there was a moment players were like level three. They found a village in the middle of the jungle that had been decimated by a, a roving undead horde that just added to their number, you know, and then they're walking down the river and camping for the night and they hear in the jungle a whole bunch of shambling moaning noises and they're like, oh crap. Right. And to watch them scramble and be like, you guys look out and you just see feet after feet after feet walking by as you're hiding under this, you know, bush at the edge of a cave, you know, right. and yeah. 200, 200 undead are walking <sighs> across the river to the, like, you talk about level three characters. There was a debate between the players of like, do we fight them? Do we not fight them? Like, what do we do? How many oh, are there? No. We don't know how many are there. And then they hid and they were like, thank God that we hid. And I was like, yeah. 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 You would have died. Yeah, that quickly, been, you know? That would have been bad news for you. But yeah. it's like that moment where it's like you you introduce something like that where like, you know, the even in The Walking Dead, they do this where one zombie, not real, not real terrifying. You can push it away. But when you have 10 of them, 20 of them, like if you get cornered, you're toast. There's no way out. You know, even if you're, even if you're pretty high level. 
Yeah, certainly, certainly. I think five E five E models that pretty well. I, I'm not sure if that's what you're playing, but I know for yeah. like just in general, five E is handle that pretty well. That's really cool. And like to me, you know, we're, we're talking a bit about just sort of building worlds and 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 then running them, and like it's as much about the like the systems that I've got the the mechanical support as the sort of narrative setup. To me, like the the wasteland, this hostile environment that's dangerous and crawling with monsters, and you've got to like go out into and find resources from like. Just traversing that is so much of an adventure in and of itself that making sure I've got a solid grasp on whatever, um, you know, exploration rules we've got and we've, groups come to an agreement with like, okay, how are we going to handle things like Tiny Hut or Goodberry or Outlander background or something like if, you're, if I'm getting strong vibes of like they just do not want to worry about food, for instance, then to me, that's sending a clear message of like, no matter what I do they're not going to care and there's it's time to focus on other aspects of survival but if they're open to it you may switch things around or or alter how it works or you know something to introduce an element of uncertainty but the fact that they would be just wandering around to like find evidence of a zombie herd and then like it comes back to them just it offers so much possibility for like emergent storytelling of like there's a monster like you come across its tracks now you you know, are you going to keep a watch out? Are you going to try to follow it? See where it's going? You know, there's lots of really even cool just stuff the looming there. presence of knowing that it's there, mm -hmm, even if you mm -hmm. can't see it, right? Yeah, and it turns like like a like a fun episode of The Walking Dead when it was fun. I stopped watching it about <laughs> half of its lifetime ago, but <laughs> like you know, <laughs> like oh, we need medicine. Someone has a fever. We need medicine. Baby needs diapers. <laughs> you know, something in like the act of just okay, who's going to go? Who's staying here? That what would in a traditional game be a either hand waved away as a shopping trip or griped about as a three hour, you know, <laughs> a slowdown in your game becomes the adventure. And whether or not you make it back with the supplies, like that has those real stakes there. There's and you maybe you come back with enough, maybe you come back with plenty, maybe you don't come back with anything or don't come back in time. But like all of those things to me they're just they present situations that i just don't get in traditional role-playing like i've never run out of stuff in traditional role-playing i've never like been back against the wall like my gear's broken and i'm lost and i, li I like variety in my games i want to one day be like i should have been a ranger like you know like they would they would be fine out here and i'm screwed <laughs> Perfect. Well, that leads us, and I mean, we definitely hinted at some things, but if there, it's our favorite section of the interview of, is there homework that we can tell people to go read, to go watch, to go experience? And we've definitely hinted at a lot of different things, um, but are there other pieces of media to toss out at our listeners um, to kind of get, to get that feel of post-apocalyptic? Mm, yeah. Oof. Also, so, I, okay. Yeah. Go well, ahead. Go ahead. If you've got if you've got one. Uh, okay. I well, yeah. I just realized I kind of maybe have a problem with the number of comic books that I get and read. <laughs> um, stupid <laughs> comicsology. Uh, so <laughs> a few that I was thinking is uh, Seven to Eternity, which kind of harkens back to the idea of this post-apocalyptic world where there was a, like basically this godlike figure that was the Whisperer, um, and you could basically he would give you whatever you wanted, but at a price sort of mm. situation and there's this family that leaves and eventually this post-apocalyptic situation finds them again generations later 
I also think of The Last God, which is a, a recent one. It actually has some RPG elements um, already built for it on the back end. Um, again, basically all the gods have died except this last one, and that and they're not great. Uh, and it's kind of taking over all of existence in the worst way possible. Nice. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, I, I alluded to a few of them that were in my homework. So there's the... Uh, we're alive audio drama podcast, which is really fun. I mean, it, it has all sorts of elements of survival to needing to go and fix things in the town in order for their hotel to survive, finding food, like all and, and mystery and discovery of like what's really going on here. Like it's got all of the sorts of elements that you could think of in a post-apocalyptic world for the most part. And then, you know, go rewatch uh Snowpiercer. It's a lesser kind of known movie. It's a good one. But it's a fascinating one one, though of like surviving on this train that goes all around and super fast. And it's an interesting look at power trying to stay in power when they know things are coming to an end. And so it's really fascinating to uh to watch and to look at. So that would be those would be my kind of two to go and check out. Awesome. Yeah, those are some good ones. Man, I got a lot more than two. Go ahead. I was just starting with two because I have a whole bunch more, but I'm, I, so we'll, yeah, yeah. we'll just keep it going around for, for a little bit. So go ahead. So there's like the whole, you know, genre of movies that, you know, that I'm sure everybody out there's familiar with and can, you know, pull up the wiki on almost any of those are good fodder for it. Like some of my favorites are like the postman for another Kevin Costner post-apocalypse movie. This one has no sci-fi elements to it. There's no magic or supernatural stuff. It's just society collapsed. And these are, these are the people, you know, like it's just who they are. They live in the the ruins of the towns that, you know, their, their parents grew up in kind of place. And uh, I, I really liked that. The, the book is really uh, much better than the movie, um, but the movie's passable uh, if you can find it. Um, the other's a, a canticle for Leibowitz which is a uh this uh sci-fi sort of novel written uh, i think in like 59 or 60 that's monks uh who are like a thousand years from now they're catholic monks who are preserving like 20th and 21st century knowledge in monasteries in the rocky mountains and and like how a, a, a fragment of of something a monk finds sends him on a, a continental quest across the, north america to uh to go see if he can, you know, figure it out. It's just a really interesting sort of story of, of what a long-term kind of post-apocalyptic world looks like. And that, that connection with, with a past that was far more advanced than, you know, than the present. Uh, I really liked. I now think of the Rocky mountains as the Catholic Tibet. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> so another comic series also from Robert Kirkman, who did The Walking Dead, is called Oblivion, where basically there's a technological device, and I think it's Chicago maybe, but basically some metropolitan town, where it pops off and basically 10 city blocks or more transport to this alien world and 10 city blocks, if you will, of that alien world transport back into our world and all the monsters and vegetation. And eventually that's handled, but then it's where did all these people go and sending people back into there and they have to start, they essentially start creating a civilization there because they're, what other, what other option do they have? 
other than that. And so it's like these, they're in the ruins of the society, but then also expanding out somewhat into the world itself. Um, so that's a really, really interesting one because it's almost like not really post-apocalyptic. It's kind of just apocalyptic because it's still happening to a degree. Um, and yeah, so that's a really fun one to read. Yeah, 300,000 residents of Philadelphia are suddenly trapped in oblivion. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine just your your world just, I mean, Neil, you talk about your world being on fire for a couple of days. I mean, that's just like instantaneous, like, uh, (laughs) I can't even, I can't even go out of here. There's nothing that looks familiar. Mm -hmm. Yeah, literally, it's like one second it was, one second it isn't. And that that instantaneous element of that post-apocalyptic. Awesome. Jim, you have more. I know yeah, you do. I, I was going to say, I, I got a couple of video games. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, so Horizon Zero Dawn, uh, as I'm sure mm. a lot of people thought, there's is sort of a, a distant apocalypse. But this is why I include, like, you're still living in the shadow of it, of that civilization uh, in terms of post-apocalypse, because it lets you have those, like, oh, it's like hundreds and hundreds of years ago. I just love it. Like, it's just exploring the ruins of it trying to figure out what happened it's it's a dangerous land filled with these beasts and monsters and and just like a really fun uh aesthetic to it that uh they really like and then another one is uh stalker shatter of chernobyl which is like kind of an older game sorry about 10 or more years old like 12 years old now Uh, i think it's pc only but you uh, are a scavenger someone who goes into the uh, the exclusion zone around uh, the, the Chernobyl plant, the Ukraine, and like loots it. Except in this, this the you know, the the meltdown caused like psychic phenomenon and and all sorts of weird supernatural things to occur. So it's you know you're wandering through this desolate wilderness, dealing with bandits and wild animals and the occasional weird psychic phenomenon. It's like it's very D and D in that sense. Um, and and I find it's just it has a very like deep sadness to it which i find very satisfying in my uh in my post-apocalypse it's a sort of sense of, of tragedy uh and and uh it's really cool so that reminded me of two that most people will be familiar with and then we'll ask our most important question of you jim but um <laughs> it made me think of like anytime there's time travel in a zelda game it's not good when you get to the other side of it like breath of the wild or ocarina <laughs> of time you get to the other side and you're like oh man i really should have stayed here things, <laughs> things went so far left uh oops um so yeah check those out as well but my most important question for you is where can people go to find all of the stuff you are doing on ye old interwebs yeah yeah so um we've got our youtube channel WebDM, uh where we post videos uh every wednesday and um for as long as the kickstarter is going on which i think is through the week of uh, like the second week of july or maybe the first it, it, it ends on the 11th through then uh all of our videos are about aspects of the kickstarter so if there's something you're curious about uh we we go sort of do deep dives into them uh to give you an idea on it but otherwise we you know have our videos every wednesday uh we have webdm plays which is another youtube channel uh where our actual play is archived as well as that campaign uh land between two rivers i'm on twitter intermittently uh as yeah. it strikes me uh <laughs> as and i as my uh, uh health uh, demands <laughs> say, it's uh, probably at, for the best right, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah uh at the real jim davis uh you can always at me there chat about something i may or may not get to it and then I also play in uh, Pendragon campaign on Monday nights on oh, nice. Eric Volgaris's channel. We are in, we're about almost two years into the like two 
real life years yeah, yeah. into wow. the campaign. And uh, King Arthur just married Guinevere. Uh, we're playing through the entire Great Pendragon campaign, uh, starting in the Age of Uther up through uh, the end. And it's wow. it's it's like a it's a dream come true. It's a really awesome game. It's me and one other player, uh, and we just play our knights and their dynasties and. It's, it's really cool. So that's Monday nights on Eric Bulgaris's Twitch channel at, um, I believe, 8 Eastern uh, is when we start. Awesome. Yeah, I've played enough Pendragon to know that when you said two years, I knew it was in the real world. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. Well, we'll have links to, to all that in the show notes. And then, of course, Jim, thank you for coming on and spending some more time with My us pleasure. and My blowing pleasure. up some worlds. Oh, yes. <laughs> or slow burning them. Whatever we yeah. want to do. You know? Yeah. Barbecue it. <laughs> I'm just still thinking about radioactive mimics, man. Oh, yeah. Suck. Yeah, that would suck. So, <laughs> yeah. See, I told you it was a great episode. I loved uh, being able to talk with Jim, longtime subscriber on YouTube. So go and check out their stuff. Go and check out the Kickstarter for their post-apocalyptic world Kickstarter book. It is in the link uh, below or the show notes below. Uh, if you have anything that you want to talk about from this episode, if you have questions or comments or want to share stories about how you yourself have used post-apocalyptic worlds in your world, uh, feel free to email us a story or a question at dungeonmasterblock at gmail.com. Uh, if you like what you heard, go help us out with the iTunes uh, or the Apple podcast algorithm by leaving us a five-star review. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at DMS underscore block. That's DMs, uh, DMs block. Uh, and you can like us on Facebook as well. The Block Party Podcast Network or the Dungeon Masters Block is a proud member of the Block Party Podcast Network. Check out our other shows like the GM Showcase, Geek Wars, We're So Bad at Adventuring, Detentions and Dragon, and Dungeons and Dragons and Daughters, and more. So again, thanks for listening to this episode of the Dungeon Master's Block, the place where we come to talk about the Dungeon Master, the most important person in the game, the only person capable of playing God, killing characters, and lowering the egos of all the people at the table. Have a good night, everyone. Goodbye.